Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. Join us on a road trip down the dark and winding roads of America, where we'll take turns exploring the strangest true crime and paranormal stories we can find. We'll devote two episodes to each state we're stopping, sharing a true crime and paranormal story each week. So buckle up as we head to this week's destination, New Jersey. Also known as the Garden State, New Jersey is the most densely populated state despite being the fourth smallest by area and is home to the highest number of millionaires per capita of all U.S. states. With its diverse population and long history, New Jersey is home to some of the strangest story in the United States. So Nicole, what's your unusual story for today? Uh, I'm super excited to share my unusual story for today. So our story starts in the little quiet town of Westfield, New Jersey, which is in the northeastern part of the state. I don't think I've actually ever heard of that. It's very tiny. It's uh, kind of, it's pretty close to New York City, like that region of New Jersey. Yeah. We're actually going to head over to Hillside Avenue and the former location of Breeze Knoll. Before it burnt down under suspicious circumstances in August of 1972, Breeze Knoll was the crown of the neighborhood. This Victorian mansion had 19 rooms spread across three stories, including a grand ballroom that featured a massive stained glass skylight that was rumored to be an original Tiffany creation and it was worth more than $100,000. Holy shit, that's an expensive freaking... Oh, wow. I cannot afford that ever in my life. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe you can rethink that when you build a ballroom. That's true. I mean, that is on my to-do list, building a ballroom. Loud-ass motorcycle. <laughs> So it was here, under this beautiful skylight that neither of us can afford, where the local authorities made a ghastly discovery on December 7th, 1971. The last residents to live in Breeze Knoll were John List, his wife Helen, his mother Alma, and John and Helen's three children, Patricia, John Jr., and Frederick. The family moved into Breeze Knoll in 1965 after John was hired as the vice president and comptroller for a Jersey City bank. By all accounts, the List family was quiet and kept it themselves, but seemed pretty perfect. John was a devout family man who taught Sunday school at the local Lutheran church. Helen participated in church-run events while the children were involved in after-school activities. Patricia liked to participate in local theater productions, and John and Frederick were active on the local sports teams. Okay, so everything's just going to come right back to Drop Dead Gorgeous because I just thought about, that's why we Lutherans use grape Kool-Aid for the blood of Christ. Father Dunnigan, that's right. Father Dunnigan. <laughs> Father Dunnigan, sidewalks. Sidewalks. So, under the surface, John was actually in terrible financial debt. Uh, he had bought Breeze Knoll, and it was probably too much house for the amount of money he was actually making. So the family was a little bit indebted from that. Also, at the same time, Helen was becoming an alcoholic as she silently suffered from complications associated with syphilis that she contracted from her first husband, who died in World War II. This sounds like every rich family I know, minus the syphilis, but like every rich family I know, it's always like, yes, we pretend to be perfect. We're in debt. Oh, guess what? My wife's an alcoholic. It just, that's like the typical thing. Yeah, it's like part of the stress of having that image you have to project for the community, but also like being under that financial burden kind of like drives people. Exactly. Money does not help in any, I mean, it helps with paying bills. But, well, it helps when you live within your means. Yes, but most people don't. Exactly. And that was probably the case with the lists as well. You know, John's like kind of trying to manage his financial debt. Helen's drinking a lot because she's in pain and under this stress, fighting with her husband. The children, meanwhile, try to get out of the house and participate in as many activities as possible so they're out of the house as frequently as possible. I don't want to be there either. Exactly. 
So this situation, already tense, grew worse once John was actually fired from his job as the bank vice president. For months, he kept up this ruse, though, with his family that he still had his job, and he would go to the local train station in the morning and read the paper looking for new work. He was kind of convinced that he'd be able to find new new employment and then get the family back on track. But as the months wore on, uh, his financial circumstances just got worse and worse. Oh, fun. Yeah. And he was somebody who was very proud, who believed that you should be able to, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like you work for what you have kind of mentality. So he absolutely refused to even consider the idea of taking any kind of welfare or charity or assistance to shore up his family finances. And see, although when it happens to other people, I'm like, oh, come on, why won't you do that? That's dumb that you're not doing that. Mm -hmm. Come on, it's there for a reason. And then if it were me... I'd probably be like, no, I don't need it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it all by myself. Yep. And there's this whole idea of like, it's kind of embarrassing because then people know that you couldn't hack it essentially. Exactly. And when you're in a family like this where you're super rich and everyone knows you in the community, it's kind of Mm -hmm. hard because then you're committing social suicide, which is important to people like this. Exactly. He in particular thought it was super embarrassing and it was just not any, it wasn't a possibility at all for John. So... Things came to a head on November 9th, 1971. That day, John, who again was not only worried about the family finances, but also started to worry that his family was drifting away from the Lutheran church. He's very concerned about his family's spiritual life. He realized at this point, the family was on the brink of losing Breeze Knoll and they would be homeless and thrown into poverty. He made a drastic decision. After the children left for school, he shot Helen, his wife of 20 years, in the back of the head while she enjoyed her customary morning coffee. Great plan. Mm Mm-hmm. Then he climbed the three flights to the attic apartment that his 84-year-old mother, Alma, resided in and shot her as she lay in bed. He waits all day. Finally, the afternoon rolls around, and Patricia, who was 16, and Frederick, who was 13, finally arrive home from school. And as they do, John proceeds to shoot each of them in the back of the head. This is going in a very cheery direction. Super cheery. Then he makes himself a sandwich. Because all that killing makes me hungry, I mm-hmm. know, so... And then he leaves the house to close out his bank accounts and then goes to cheer on his oldest son, John Jr., who's playing in an after-school soccer game. Wait, so he killed all the other kids and now he's cheering on his other kid mm-hmm. and then is probably going to kill him after that. Are you reading my notes? No, but I'd like to. That is exactly what John does. So he gives John Jr., who's 15 years old at the time, a ride home and then once they get to the house, he shoots him in the chest, killing him. So at this point... Uh, All the members of the List family, except for John, are dead. He takes the bodies of his family, puts them on sleeping bags under the skylight in the Breeznell ballroom, and it takes extra care to make sure to cover each of their faces. Okay, so that normally shows that, like, their person is, like, regretful of Mm -hmm. what they did. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, this story has always been one of those weird stories that I remember really well, and it was the first time I ever heard the term family annihilator which is somebody who does just that. They kill their entire family, and usually it's because there's this perception in the killer's head that their family is at this turning point where the only way to save them from a tragic end, a terrible a terrible life, something awful happening, is to kill them. Yeah. And that's, that's very much what John was thinking when he committed these crimes. When did you say this took place? 1971. Okay. So it's right around the holidays, right? Like after, it's like early November, so right before Thanksgiving. Yeah. And oh, well, this happens a lot more around the holidays, mm-hmm. too. So you imagine he doesn't want his family homeless at the holidays. There's definitely a lot of those where they're just like, I'm killing you to protect you. Yes. Well. 
Well, even creepier is that John actually wrote this all down to a, in a letter to his pastor. He wrote oh, five pages to his local pastor because he felt that he could understand where he was coming from. And in the letter, he kind of goes on to explain that, you know, he was really fearful for his family's souls. He felt like they were being corrupted by the evil of the outside world. And that's starting to sound familiar to me. I think I actually might know this story. You might know this one. It's a pretty famous story. Um, so he didn't want his family forced into poverty. And he thought by killing them, he could save their souls before they could turn away from the church, save them from poverty. And he knew it was something that he couldn't kill himself because then he wouldn't go to heaven. But he was sure that he would be able to see his family one day in heaven again because he had killed them before they could fall away from the church. So he's the good guy. Yep. According to the letter that he wrote for his oh, pastor. Man. Okay. So he leaves this letter on the desk in his study. And then John Liz proceeds to methodically clean the house and cover his tracks. He goes through and cuts his face out of all the family photos. He cancels all the mail that comes to the house. He cancels all their usual deliveries. And then he goes an extra step and he sends letters to all the children's schools stating that the family's actually going to be out of state visiting relatives for several weeks. Okay. So covering all his bases yep, there. all his bases. He then tunes the mansion's intercom system to this religious organ music radio station. No wonder they freaking didn't have any money in intercom in your freaking house. Do you need that? I mean, I don't know if he put it in. I'm just saying. Oh, it's the mansion. That's how big it was. He does a quick prayer over his family's bodies to say goodbye. And then he leaves Breeze Knoll and just disappears. A month goes by. And after about that time, the neighbors start noticing that one by one, the lights in Breeze Knoll, which have been on all month, are slowly starting to burn out. And it also doesn't look like the lists returned from their vacation that they were on. So a bunch of concerned neighbors and friends call the police and they go to Breeze Knoll to check on the List family. So as soon as the authorities get in there, they find all the bodies and they find John's note and they immediately contact the FBI and the manhunt begins. Fun. Mm-hmm. I realize that I say fun way too much in this <laughs> podcast, but that's normally my weird response to things. So it's been a month, right? The trail's totally cold. No one has any idea where John List is. He hasn't been seen. All of the photographs they have are really old and dated, so they don't even actually have a good way to, like, question people if they've seen him because he destroyed all of his recent family photos. The FBI eventually does locate his car, which he abandoned at uh, JFK in New York City, but there's no evidence that he actually boarded a plane, so they have no idea where he is. This is sounding really familiar now. I swear I know the story. I'm sure you do. <laughs> so the List family murder haunts the town of Westfield. Like John List becomes this like boogeyman stalking the quiet streets. Nobody wants to live near that house. People kind of like oh, avoid it. They don't like like kids won't walk past it on their way to school. And how was that house? And then on, uh, several months after this all comes to light, the house is burned down in August of '72 in a fire that most of the Local fire marshal notes agree is probably arson. So someone went and burned the house down. In 1974, a new house was built on the site and people continued to move in there. But it was still always a contentious location because people remembered the List family that was destroyed that one day in November 1971. And that is in the real estate business what we call a stigmatized property. Mm -hmm. So 18 years pass and no one knows where John List is. The case is still open, though cold at this point. Then... In May of 1989, the murders were covered on a little television show you might know called America's Most Wanted. Oh, okay. So the story also features not only John Walsh being very dramatic and explaining the grisly details to his television audience. As he is. As he does so, so well. But it also features a bust of John List that was age-progressed by a forensic artist sculptor Frank Bender. And... 
the media coverage, the image of this bus kind of gets saturated from the Fox broadcast, America's Most Wanted, and it just starts all these new leads coming in to the Westfield Police Station and the FBI about John List. People are saying, oh, that looks like my neighbor. That looks like this guy I used to work with, that sort of thing. And in less than two weeks after America Most Wanted aired, John List is arrested in Richmond, Virginia, based on a call from his neighbor. That's pretty awesome. Pretty crazy, right? Yeah. And that's why I, I love this story so much, because it's like, you think this guy has gotten away with it. And they have caught people mm-hmm. like that before from that exact show, which is really cool. That's why it's always important to, to tell these stories so people know. So in the 18 years since he murdered his family, he had assumed the name Robert Bob Peter Clark. It was actually a name he stole from a college classmate. And the funny thing is the real Bob Clark was like, I never even knew the guy. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, List, under this assumed name, lived in Denver, Colorado, and Richmond, Virginia, where he continued to work as a comptroller and an accountant. Um, even when he was in Denver, he also joined a local, local Lutheran church. And by all accounts, he's a very charitable parishioner with his time. He actually ran Meals on Wheels type services to shut in members of the church. So he, he's Laura Palmer now. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And he even met a new wife. Dolores Miller, who he married in 1985. So he basically started a whole new, new life. life. Yeah. Um, after they conf- after authorities were able to confirm his identity through the fingerprints in his military records, that's all they really had to go on, are these like 40-year-old military records, uh, they tried John List, and he is convicted of five counts of first-degree murder. He can Yeah. He continued to deny that he was responsible for the murders. Uh, he even said at his sentencing, quote, I feel that because my, of my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I ask all affected by this for their forgiveness, understanding, and prayer. You couldn't hear it, but I rolled my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much also what the sentencing judge did, too. (laughs) The sentencing judge was kind of like, yeah, no, I don't think so. And levied the harshest maximum sentence he could at the time. Well, you said he even sent, um, like, a letter to his, his well, he, yeah, he, pastor, He right? wrote it and, like, basically confessed and, like, left it there yeah. and explained his reason. So it was clearly premeditated. And based on that, the, the judge uh, sentenced him to five life sentences that had to be served consecutively. Okay. And John List was indeed imprisoned, and he died in prison at the age of 82 from complications with pneumonia. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. I remember this story very vividly from uh, America's Most Wanted. Yeah, I definitely have heard that one before. I don't know where. It could have been that, or it could have been something else, but I definitely knew that story somewhere in the back of my head. Yeah, I just think it's such a such a creepy, weird, exceptional kind of story. Yeah. And it, it's definitely something that you wonder what it says about, you know, one, Americans being so obsessed with the idea of keeping up the Joneses. And yeah. Making sure by all appearances everything is keen and dandy, but when it comes down to it, it's like people are going to break and sometimes in this terrible, you know, murderous way like John List did when they can't keep up with that pressure. And I mean, it's weird to say this but like yeah rich people are normally like the most depressed people because they have so much they think they need to be and need to you know to fit into society yep and i mean that's not saying that poor people don't have it tough because obviously i know uh, i can barely (laughs) afford shit so i know um but it's a certain it's a different kind of toughness being rich i guess and it's more about society and... It's a different struggle, but it's still there. It's not... Like, yeah. having money doesn't solve your problems. It doesn't solve your problems. That's the point that I was trying to make. Yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, there's a bunch of really cool books and a couple TV movies based on the story. 
So I encourage any listeners who want to learn more about, about the List family murders to absolutely look it up and read it. Anything to get their hands on. There are a couple movies that were like weirdly inspired by this case, too. Um, the creepiest one, I think, was... Have you seen the movie Stepfather? No, I don't think so. Oh, it was the, the actor who played um, John Locke on Lost. I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now. I don't know names. I know the actors from the show, but I don't really watch My mom watched it. He played this stepfather who like comes into like these families' lives and would like get displeased and then like murder them and leave and it was like it very it's it's like this really cranked up like hollywood version of like a family annihilator that's and weird. it's it's really definitely one of those like wait so it's about movies. like a, a killer stepfather who just like marries like the mom and then when the when the kids mess up he kills them okay uh so it's kind of it's like super 80s too so it's very like almost like the black widow movie where like the woman like marries the, the guy oh, yeah. and then kills him and then changes her identity and does it again sort of but this is like we're a good family and when all of a sudden when the family starts to fall apart or like kids fight with him or something like that that's when he snaps and murders them it's that's kind of his lifetime written all over uh, it too yeah it was a, it was actually a studio movie it was like a oh, big horror right. movie in the 80s but i suggest checking it out if you want to be horrified in an 80s delicious 80s delicious way oh of course i always want to be horrified in an 80s delicious way so that's my story. I'm sticking to it. All right. That was pretty cool. Um, uh, I definitely have a good one for you, too. But first, we are going to take a little break, and then we will be right back with you for some spooky. All right. Pit stop, y'all. And we're back. Hold on. I need my pit stop drink. Okay. Oh, yeah. Delicious carbonated water. Ugh, Gross. Tastes like cherries. Have you heard of that, uh, what's it called, the white claw or some Ugh. bullshit? Yes. I have had some. You have had some. What's, I have. What do you think? I'd prefer just to have like a flavored club soda or seltzer with like a shot of vodka in it. Exactly. Because like it's refreshing. You first have it, you're like, oh my god, I can't believe there's booze in this, and then you start drinking it, and like it gets warmer and warmer, and you realize it is malt liquor. Yeah. Oh. Oh, that's like the not your father's root beer. Mm-hmm. I loved it the first time I had it. And the first glass is wonderful. Don't have more than one glass nope. or one bottle or whatever you're having. Because after that, you start tasting the awful fakeness of it. Mm-hmm. And it's just gross. I'm a sucker for that brand, though. I always have to try, like... They are good. Like the weird Dewshine one. It's like a Mountain Dew oh, the, one. Not I'm your like, Father's Mountain Ale or something yes. it's called. Yeah. It's so gross, but the first one you have really is good, so though. good. <laughs> and I like their um, the ginger ale one, too, because it tastes like ginger beer, kind of. Right, I can dig that. And I, I love ginger that. beer. Ginger beer is really good. You should try Krabby's. I love Krabby's. Oh, yeah. I love myself some Krabby's. I didn't realize you were supposed to pour it over ice, even though it literally says that on the bottle. <laughs> I don't and read it. And the first either. time I was drinking it, I'm like drinking it out of the bottle. I'm like, oh my God, it's so gingery. It burns. <laughs> I'm a man. I don't read directions. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't be driving whilst we drink. No, so that's so. why you have your seltzer. The seltzer. And I have some off-brand cola that I bought because it was 70-some cents for I mean, a two-liter. That's how you know it's the good stuff. It is, although it goes flat the very next day if you don't drink it all. That's so why you gotta drink it. Two-liter a day now. <laughs> Anyway. So what's your what's your uh, next stop in New Jersey? Well, for today, I'll be taking you guys to Cape May, New Jersey. With the beach town? Yep. It's a beautiful town with a rich history and, well, lots of rich people as well. If you haven't been there, it's right at the southernmost tip of the Jersey Shore, so you need to drive down the worst road on the face of the earth. Is it Gardens, 95? Garden State oh, Parkway. Garden State. <laughs> for forever to get there, but it's worth it. 
It has beautiful boardwalks, lots of mansions, and is a lot cleaner and quieter than the other beaches in New Jersey, as far as I'm concerned. So it's not Sorry, like super, New Jersey. It's not like super party town. Like it's, no, I mean that's Wildwood, which is yeah. kind Asbury of Park right too. next to it. Asbury Park's coming along really well yeah. these days because uh, when I went there, it was a shithole, but now it's gotten a lot better. Where was I in my Sorry. notes? No, you're talking about Cape May. <laughs> no, it's fine. This is good. This is what I want anyway. So. I already said no offense to New Jersey. I actually wrote that in my notes. <laughs> I was like, but if you're from the if you're from the Jersey Shore, you'll know what I mean. <laughs> Although there are actually a ton of haunted places in Cape May, it's pretty much the whole town. It's supposed to be one of the most haunted places in America. I'm just focusing on one house in particular, which is the Emlyn Physic Estate, which has been labeled Cape May's original haunted house. So is it just haunted because there's so much history there? I think it's just it's a very old town. Okay. Um, so I think that that probably lends to the haunting. I haven't found anything about like Native American burial ground or, you know, <laughs> so one of those. Em- Emlyn Physic? Emlyn Physic, yeah. What kind of name is Emlyn? I've never heard it. it sounds before. like a Welsh name. It, uh, Welsh names are normally prettier than that. Like a, like a Welsh honorific name, maybe. Emlyn, maybe. I don't, know. I don't know. But in Physic, I've never heard that last name either. That sounds totally made up. It sounds very weird. Anyway, Emlyn Physic was born in Philadelphia on June 5th of 1855 to Emlyn Physic Sr. That's how you get a name, like Emlyn Physic. Exactly. But uh, his mother's name was Francis Ralston. He's the grandson of prominent Philadelphia surgeon named Philip Singh Physic. Hmm. So you've got a normal name like Physic, and it's like, what should I name my son? Emlyn. (laughs) (laughs) So Emlyn Physic also went to medical school to follow in his grandfather's footsteps. But he never ended up using his degree. We might think that's just something that happens to everyone today, but apparently it was a thing back then, too. <laughs> that's but, reassuring, I guess. Yeah. Emily had the best reason not to use his degree, though. He didn't need to. He was already independently wealthy. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. His father, sadly, passes away when Emily is only four years old, and he was left the family fortune. In 1876, he moved to Cape May and purchased a plot of land on Washington Street, totaling 11 acres. This would be the future location of the titular mansion. Okay. The house took four years to build, and while the construction was going on, he lived in what is now the carriage house. The mansion itself is gorgeous, and we'll try to post some pictures on our website or provide a link or something. Can you go visit it, like, today? Yeah, it's actually open for tours and stuff. Oh, cool. Uh, It only has 18 rooms. Uh, which I don't know for an, like, like a big, only has eighteen rooms. Like my house state. has like four rooms. Okay? I know my house has <laughs> like six, eight, maybe I don't know, but um, but yeah, it just that always seems like with mansions. I always think like it has thirty rooms, yeah. like you know, but it has eighteen rooms. He lived there with his mother and her two sisters who weren't married. They kept calling them his spinster aunts. No, not spinster oh, aunts. Dang, that's a good title though. What did they call it? it wasn't it wasn't maiden? It was matron. No, it wasn't matron, but it just basically was another word for virgin. (laughs) Yeah, it was very, very upsetting when I read it. (laughs) Their names were Emily and Isabel Parmentier, and I assume they probably had to take care of Isabel because, according to my research, she was said to be an invalid. Those are not my words, but the words of several of my sources. So I did a little more digging then, and it turns out that she had epilepsy and was confined to the second floor of the house 
most of her life and had to be in a wheelchair because back then they didn't know shit about epilepsy. Yeah, and they never it quite was knew. the fainting disease is That's what they so called insane. it. So like they never knew when she was going to have like a fit. So it's like, you just stay in the wheelchair. You stay in the wheelchair. In case yeah. something happens. And then she's just like, great. Well, I'm miserable up here. She probably also felt bad because, you know, back in those days, if you were somehow infirmed mm-hmm. and you were in high society, you were shunned. Like they had to keep you a secret. Yeah, so she was kind of like a bit of the black sheep of the family, but it could have been a, a reason why maybe the other sister was also a matron aunt. Yeah, exactly. It seems to be like a thing in the family with no one getting married because Emlyn also did not marry. Oh. Emlyn then became a gentleman farmer, was involved in real estate. He was a backer for the Cape May Golf Club, president of the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and briefly was the president of the First National Bank of Cape May. So he was single, but he kept busy. Yeah, he had a lot of things to do. So two things. If you don't know what a gentleman farmer is, it's someone who owns farmland, or in this case, he had two farms, but doesn't do it for the money. Secondly, wow, he seems like an overachiever. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how he had time to breathe, and no wonder he didn't use his degree when he didn't have time to. But he wasn't really farming the land, was he? No, it's just someone, I guess... He, like, supervised them? I think maybe he did. Actually, it didn't even say that. Because initially when I heard gentleman farmer, that's what I thought. I thought it was like, here, you go do the work. Mm-hmm. But then I looked it up and it said that it was just someone who doesn't do it for money. So he oh. could have very well still been farming it himself. But for all you know, he could be growing something like sunflowers. Exactly. It could just be like, here's my daisies. <laughs> I'm a gentleman farmer. <laughs> Emlyn's mother then passed away in 1915 and he was soon to follow in the following year. His Aunt Emily lived there until her death as well, and the house was then willed to a neighbor named Francis Brooks, who had taken care of Emily later in life. And they seem like really nice people if they're just giving it to their neighbor. Wow. What are they going to do with it? That's true, but I mean, I think that's pretty awesome of them. So for the next 30 or so years, the house would see many owners and eventually fall into disrepair. In the 60s, the property was purchased by a developer who wanted to tear it down and turn it into tract homes but was saved by MAC, or the Mid-Atlantic Center for the Arts and Humanities, and the city was able to purchase the house. Uh, The home was leased to MAC, and they began restoring uh, the restoring process, and they still own and operate it to this day. Okay, so it's just kind of this historic mansion. It's not like a bed and breakfast or a hotel. No, no, it's just they, they keep it there. They give tours, some of them being ghost tours, some of them being regular tours as far as I know. All right, so this all seems pretty, pretty run of the mill, you know. Wealthy family, a couple of, you know, black sheep, they all kind of die off, and then, you know, we have this amazing mansion. Exactly. And it is quite amazing, so if you guys want to, like I said, see pictures of it, we'll probably put something up. The estate, like I mentioned before, is owned and operated by Mac now, and a lot of the staff say that they never quite feel alone when they're there. <gasps> like? They feel like things are watching them. They oh. Yeah. Uh, people that bought the house in the mid-40s, Dr. Harry Sidney Newcomer and his wife, Dr. Marion Newcomer. A so, lady doctor. A lady doctor, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, both of them doctors. Apparently, this house just attracts doctors. Uh, they were actually driven from the house because they were too afraid of the spirits there. Well, I mean, it wasn't Dr. Newcomer and his wife, but it was Dr. Newcomer and his second wife after his first wife died. Her name was Pauline, and she was his secretary or assistant. Wow. So he married her after the death of his wife, and she was the one that had the problems with the ghosts. So she was only able to live there for a few years before she told her husband they had to move. In fact, after they left, 
no one would really stay there because of all the activity. And that's what led to it almost being torn down. Oh, so basically it's like crazy, uncomfortable, like haunting things happen and no one ever wants to like live in that house. Pretty much is what it seems like with, with these people. Like the things that I read about it, some of them are total nopes. Uh, <laughs> but a lot of them I'm like, well, that seems kind of cool. So we'll get into I'm all I'm excited that. to hear about the nopes. Dr. Newcomer even mentioned to a couple who were going to buy the house from him that he had heard noises like people moving around every night, and he finally gave up investigating that. But he was baffled by the idea that there were ghosts roaming his house since he was a man of science and wasn't supposed to believe in any of that. Mm. Yeah. On to the ghosts. First off, we have Emily, Emily's aunt. They believe her spirit stuck around because the house was already falling into disrepair toward the time of her death, so she wanted to be there to watch over the property. She is said to be very friendly and kind. People who are in her bedroom during tours of the house feel very comfortable in there, and they feel very happy. Emily in life was said to be a party girl, and that's in quotes, and also, quote, very sociable. So her ghost is quite the same. Well, that's good for somebody who kind of had a rough go of it. She kept kept some high spirits up. Yeah, well, uh, that was bad. <laughs> Remember, Emily is the one that was healthy, not Isabel, who's the one in the oh, wheelchair. Oh, that's right. I did forget. Or yeah, Bella, as they also call her. My bad. I confused the sisters. It's fine. It happens. She apparently, she's a very strong energy, since even people without any psychic ability seem to be able to feel her in there and saying they feel a buzz once they leave. Oh, wow. The ghost of Emlyn's mother, Frances, is said to haunt her own bedroom, which is one of the big hotspots in the house. She's more of a residual energy, though, rather than an actual ghost, which I believe we discussed the difference between in one of the last episodes we Yeah, did. versus like a recording almost versus a, a yeah. physical, like a more of a presence. Exactly. So she's just residual energy. There's not really an intelligence behind it. In her room, you just feel like you aren't supposed to be there, though. You feel like there's eyes on you, and people go into her room, and they start feeling depressed and upset. And in life, she was said to be a bit of a buzzkill, honestly, so it makes sense. So she was the buzzkill sister, and the other sister was, that like was the, the good, mom. the good time? No, but Francis oh, was... Oh, the sister, too, yeah. yeah. It was Emily's sister, so, like, one of them is like, hey, that's awesome, what are you guys doing tonight? And she's like, Pfft. I'm going home and reading. Exactly, yeah. Leave me alone. I don't want to have fun. Isabel, or Bella, as they call her is also said to haunt the estate. They don't really mention her on the tours, from what I gathered, but her presence is a very sad one, since back in those days, like I said, with a rich family, if one of your family members was chronically ill, it was seen as an embarrassment because people kind of sucked back then, honestly. Uh, Plus the poor woman was, like, trapped on the second floor second of that floor, mansion yeah. for, like, how many years? 18 rooms and she only ever saw one. Like, <laughs> that's pretty sad. So when people come into contact with her, they just start feeling very depressed. Emlyn owned a lot of dogs, because like I said, he did the, yeah, the, the prevention of the cruelty to animals and stuff like that. He had a lot of dogs. He was a big animal lover, and they're also said to haunt the property. They've been seen in the house and out on the grounds, which is weird because when they were alive, Emlyn's mother didn't allow them in the house at all, which makes me sad. Yeah. <laughs> but Emily would sneak them inside when her sister wasn't home, and she would even cook them dinner in the kitchen. Emily sounds freaking badass. Emily is kind of awesome. There's also a possible servant who haunts the carriage house, and a lot of the estate's employees have experienced this ghost mostly just making noise. Their offices are on the second floor of the carriage house, so they spend a lot of time there. Okay. Uh, Psychic Craig McManus, who has visited the house multiple times, says 
investigating the house has been, quote, some of the best paranormal times of his career. He says he experienced two strong female energies when he first was in the house, one that was peaceful and happy, which is obviously Emily, and the second that was miserable. The second one is Isabel, which makes me extremely sad, but I get it. Uh, she had no quality of life when she was alive, so that's the energy that her spirit projects. Uh, the cleaning crew at Mac, who up until they started doing their ghost tours, tended not to stay for very long because a lot of them also experienced activity in the house. And since they cleaned after closing, it would make it even creepier because they were the only ones there. So they're like the big nopers of like, nope, this is creepy. I don't necessarily need this cleaning job any longer. <laughs> exactly. They're just like, I'm out. See you, bitches. So people who have been to the house report hearing footsteps like Dr. Newcomer did and disembodied voices. That's my eye doctor's name. Dr. Newcomer? Yeah, I just realized that. Oh, really? <laughs> Maybe it was him. No, that was him. He'd be really old. I watched a video on YouTube where they got an EVP recording. And for anyone who doesn't know, EVP stands for Electronic Voice Phenomena. And every time I say phenomena, I got that phenomena <laughs> stuck in my head. So there's a recording. And you know how most of them just sound like whispers and unintelligible whatever? You well, can't really understand a lot like of them? It's like because they have like a super strong microphone. Yes. Is that how it works? Normally, yeah, they have to like isolate the sound and like bring it up. Sort of like blowing up an image, but you're doing that with sound. Gotcha. This one, however, was not like that at all. This one was very loud. It was two people talking that you could tell were just normal humans. But mm -hmm. then there was a child who wasn't there, clapped a few times, what? and said, that's mine, or it's mine, or something like that. That's a big nope. Yeah, nope. creepy. Very creepy. There have also been reports of being touched by invisible hands. That's a definite Another nope. nope. Another serious nope. People have also seen a woman in turn-of-the-century clothes standing in one of the mirrors behind them. Yeah, and then once you turn around, she's gone. I think we've talked about that. Like, I get so freaked out by, like, the idea of, like, glancing in a mirror and seeing a That's, ghost. Yeah. I do not like that. Way too scary. I don't like it either. I don't like mirrors in the dark. Mm -mm. Like, nope. I've, I have, in my house, there's, on the way to the bathroom at night, there's, like, a big standing mirror that's attached to one of the, the, the doors in the bedroom. And sometimes I try not to look at it when I'm walking. Yep. Because I'll see something, and sometimes it's, like, literally just me, and I'm, like, get all freaked out. Other times it will be, like, the cat. Uh, and then, like, I have to turn on the lights. I'm like, I just saw the ghost in the mirror. And I turn the light on, and it's literally just the cat just sitting there like, I was using my litter box. What do you want from exactly. me? Exactly. I'm just trying to poop, woman. Let me, let me alone. <laughs> um, <laughs> lastly, people also experience cold spots, strange noises, objects moving, and doors opening and closing by themselves. Okay, so all the usual, like, hijinks that... You hear in houses, like, open doors. Exactly. Lots objects. of the basics. Like, all, all the big ones, basically. Yeah, exactly. Basic, you know, paranormal activity. And I also had an experience in Cape May when I stayed there years ago in, like, 2001. We weren't anywhere near the Emblem Physic estate because I had never heard of it before doing my notes here. We did go on tours of a lot of the mansions, though, so it actually might have been one that we toured. <laughs> we were staying at this really nice um, hotel. Well, it wasn't even, like, a hotel. More like a bed and breakfast kind of thing? Or? No, I would say, I don't want to say motel because motel sounds cheap, but it wasn't like in a big building. It was Everything was individual. Oh, like little like cottages? Kind of, yeah. Okay. And um, it had like two floors, which is really cool because you had like your living room and your kitchen downstairs and then mm -hmm. you had like a bedroom upstairs that was the whole length of the house. It sounds like cabins I've stayed in. Kind of like that. Yeah, it was really nice. Not so nice when I was trying to sleep though because yet again I had sleep paralysis. Mm. and I was 
sleeping on my stomach. Normally it happens if I sleep on my back, mm -hmm. but I was sleeping on my stomach and I was there but could not move, could not make a sound, and all I hear is this growling, this low guttural, guttural growling. And then I hear the and then scratch down my back. Another growl, scratch down my back. Another growl, scratch down my back. When I wake up, there's no scratches on my back. So after stop, after I'm done being freaked out, yeah, I go back cause... to sleep. I wake up, look in the mirror in the morning. Now there are scratches on my back. Freaky. Yeah, it was. It was not. I an... hope that was like the last night you stayed there. I didn't have to like. No, I had to stay there another night after Ugh. that. Yeah, that was not fun. I would not sleep at all if something that like that happened to me. Yeah, and uh, like I said earlier, the house is available for tours. And it sounds like a great place to visit. I think that maybe, you know, we should go sometime. I think that'd be fun. I'd be down to that. I like the beach. Yeah, exactly. Free beach vacation. Well, not free because we're actually paying for it. But Fun beach vacation. Exactly. Also, the house was used in a terrible, terrible 80s slasher movie that came out in 1981 called The Prowler. Is that where you were showing me the yep. Prowler trailer? Yes. <laughs> oh, look it up on YouTube. It's terrible. I think the whole movie is available on YouTube, actually. It just looks like garbage. But you see the house the whole time. Like you, it's all filmed on the estate. They're definitely using the outside of the house ah. for it. I think the inside is a set. That makes sense. But the outside is definitely the Emlyn Physic house. The whole reason I watched the trailer was just to be like, yep, that's the house. Okay, <laughs> done. So I think we're definitely going to have to link to not only the trailer for The Prowler, but also that EVP recording you mentioned oh, yeah. that they, they yeah. recorded in it's nuts. the house. Yeah. That's so spooky. I'm excited to listen to those. Oh, hell yeah. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. That's all we have for you. Uh, but you can find us if you want to get in contact with us at our email, roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at roadsidehorrorshow. And also, there was something else I wanted to say here that now I don't remember. I know. I want to ask people to send us their own stories that we could possibly do a listener stories yes. episode which would be super awesome that and also send us pictures of your dogs because we get kind of depressed and or creeped out after doing this so please make us feel better by sending us pictures of your dogs or cats or whatever animal you have do you get more freaked out when you do the research for a true crime story or for a paranormal story i don't know a little bit of both affect me because here's the thing when i lived with my parents that house was very haunted, so every night before I went to bed, I was like, please don't let there be any freaking activity tonight. I just want to sleep, mm -hmm. and I would get nervous about that. Then I moved into this house where now there's some activity, but at first there wasn't any activity. And I'd fall asleep and just be like, oh, yeah, this is nice. I don't <laughs> have to worry about any ghostly crap going on. Everything's fine. Just a good night's sleep. And I remember just closing my eyes, and then all of a sudden my eyes shot open. I was like, wait, I live alone. I'm gonna. What if? What if there's murderers? What if there's someone <laughs> breaking in my house to murder me? Yeah. Ah, uh, that is interesting. The other thing that I wanted to talk about. Okay. That I forgot was my friend Tyler. She's actually my best friend's sister, who's like a little sister to me, pretty much. She has this really cool blog called Crime Case Collection, and you can find it by going to crimecasecollection.tumblr.com. Uh, she's actually doing pretty well. I think she said she has like 5,000 followers already, which is really cool. She does a really great job at writing these stories, telling you about famous serial killers, things like that. 
any sort of true crime. So right along our lines, minus the spooky. So definitely give that, you know, a look-see. A look-see. <laughs> I couldn't think of any other word to say. It's one of my favorite phrases that people tell me is a little... Makes them uncomfortable. It's like moist. Moist. Ugh. And looksy. People don't like looksy. Moist and looksy. A moist looksy. Oh, <laughs> gross. Okay. Title of the episode: A moist, moist looksy. On that happy note, one last shout out. I do want to thank Yak Rock Design for our killer logo and E Massey for our also kick-ass theme song. And we'll catch up with everybody next week. Later, guys. See you then.